2: Good morning and welcome to our wild world. Transformative concepts open doors, enabling remarkable shifts through time in consciousness throughout societies and cultures. After all, that's why books are written, so that we have access to these shifts in thought, published research, and data, so we may be educated, informed, a basis for decision-making, providing a path for our befuddled and overwhelmed humankind to recognize and take ownership and responsibility for our own footprints, while sharing and learning from the footprints of all the other life that abounds around us." Today, I am delighted to have as my guest, Colorado University at Boulder, Professor Emeritus Mark Beckoff as our special guest. It's almost too obvious to say, but animals do not need our help to live in nature. When we seek to manage nature, it is usually always for the benefit of us. Our questions today are going to center around increasing our compassionate footprint and how this relates to compassionate wildlife management. Questions such as, do animals suffer as we do without a safe and peaceful place to live, thrive, and survive? Can we find a way through polarization between animal protection, animal welfare, animal rights, and those interested in large landscape and overall species conservation? How do we incorporate the humane treatment and welfare of animals within the framework of traditional conservation biology and thus better conservation outcomes?" Are we gravely mistreating ourselves by mistreating animals? To help us with answers to these questions, it is my pleasure to introduce Mark Beckoff. Welcome, Mark.
3: Hey, thanks, Ellie. It's wonderful to be with you.
2: Thanks so much for being here. This is very, very exciting for me. So, um, many of my listeners would be, are going to be familiar with you, with your work as I have, uh, introduced much of, uh, your concepts through previous episodes of Our Wild World. But let's start with a little, if you could give us a little brief background about yourself and explain what ethology is and how it relates to your work in our discussion today.
3: Sure. Um, My background is really in the study of animal behavior, ethology, um, cognitive ethology, the study of animal minds, and a lot of work in conservation and this new field of compassionate conservation. Um, Ethology is really basically the study of animal behavior from more of an evolutionary and ecological perspective. Um, There's comparative psychologists who study animal behavior, but they they tend to be more mechanism-oriented and don't pay a lot of attention to evolution and ecology. So um, I like to say that ethology is the study of animal behavior as laid out by Nobel Prize-winning ethologists, Conrad Lorenz, Nico Tinbergen, and Carl von Frisch.
2: So, in other words, we're just leaving behind the days of Descartes and uh, the point that animals feel nothing.
3: Absolutely, oh yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, that's just, that's just old hat, time worn, and and really, there's not many people at all who really argue that anymore.
2: Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. So, um, I've read many of your books, uh, in the biography on our homepage here. You can, our listeners can go check out the guest page and see the abundant and array and various subject matters that, uh, Mark has written about. But we're going to start here today with a little bit, uh, about your book, Animal Manifesto, six reasons for expanding our compassionate footprint. What are the six reasons? Oh, I'd have to get the book to listen, but You know, I happen to have that right here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so basically they they all fall
3: on a number of different general topics. Um, you know, the six reasons as laid out there could have been 10, they could have been 4, they could have been six different ones, but but it's a good question, Ellie. They they focus on the fact that non-human animals are sentient beings and we owe them all we can do to be able to have them live in peace and safety. We know that they're sentient, conscious. We know they're intelligent and feeling beings. We also know that we suffer the indignities to which we subject other animals. And we also are not the only show in town. And, and, and none of these are meant as a pejorative statement. Um, we're a phenomenal species. I mean, humans do many, many things. Horrible things, but we do many wonderful things. So, you know, it really centers on the fact that humans are part of nature, not apart from nature, and that we all have to live in harmony.
2: And that, you know, what we do and what wildlife does and what our Earth does, it's all inextricably linked so let's take this a little bit further and understand how this concept of compassionate conservation, as our title today, concert, Compassionate Conservation to the Rescue, and this compassionate footprint, how does it relate to large landscape conservation that is filled with wildlife? And how do we transfer our compassion from, for our family pet, let's say, that we feel as a family member, to wild animals that are intangible to us and often far away or that we look at is really something very other than us or our pets? Oh, good. Small questions on Monday morning. I like that. <laughs> uh,
3: yeah, I mean, those are great questions. I mean, so, so backing up, um, compassionate conservation really focuses on the well-being and the protection of individual animals. And one of the things that happens is people who are really, really interested, and these are good people for sure. But who are interested in environmental ethics or conservation ethics forget that animals are really part of the environment. I mean if you you know if you ask them, they'll go oh sure they are, but a lot of their decision and policy making kind of ignores them. So people are willing, you know, for example when wolves were reintroduced into Yellowstone National Park, some wolves died for the good of other wolves. Well, that's an important question in compassionate conservation. Is it okay to have animals die for the good of their or other species? And is it okay to kill some animals in the name of conservation? And so that's where compa- that's where compassionate conservation really focuses. And it's a growing field. And people who in the past didn't really talk with one another very much are talking more and more. There's been a number of international meetings. And we're, we're discovering that you know, most of us agree on very basic things and there's going to have to be trade-offs as we move into the future.
2: That's an excellent answer and thank you for that. So you had said earlier that most of the public today is aware of this growing footprint that let's just shortly say it, animals are people too. Mm -hmm. Um, And India has gone about creating personhood for dolphins and -hmm. then there's the whole um, current I won't use the word scandal, but brouhaha, What's that's going on with uh, Tilikum, the orca, and SeaWorld. Mm-hmm. So, um, in looking at, which is highlighted that we are becoming aware that certain animals are individuals, and certain animals are deserving of personhood. Would you mind discussing that concept just a little bit with us, personhood, and how this is shifting and catching on? Sure. Sure. Um- You know,
3: we use personhood in a very general way. So um, a human being is a person or a potential person because they're self-conscious. They have complex communication. They're autonomous. That's a very big word. They're independent. They can take care of themselves. Um, So if you look at non-human animals, you'll find that many non-human animals also show degrees of consciousness, self-awareness, they have very complex patterns of communication that many researchers call language, and they're autonomous, and so that is, you know, basically, you know, they're able to make wise choices and live a good life, and of course, we have situations with humans who can't do that, my mother was one, so my mother at some point might not have fulfilled the criteria for personhood, but as a human being, Of course, she's a person. Young babies don't fulfill the criteria for personhood, but they have the potential. And what we're discovering now is that many non human animals have that exact potential and display those and other characteristics. So people are using the concept of personhood to push for more legal rights for certain animals. So they're very, you know. the concept of personhood is very intertwined with animal protection.
2: This is talk about paradigm shifts. We've made many. You know, as you had said earlier, the, our species is capable of tremendous things and we're also capable of great harm. But this paradigm shift, uh, a further paradigm shift of personhood, will have dramatic effects on a lot of our activities, and that could be the subject of a whole other show. But briefly, um, it will affect science, it will affect management, it will affect policy uh, uh, in terms of how we move forward. So two important things you said there were autonomous and potential. So we're, we're going to get into this a little bit later between Uh, varying degrees of animal rights, welfare, etc., but it seems to be a whole other matter, these degrees of autonomy and uh, potential between, let's say, an elephant, an elk, an impala, a deer, a family of wild pigs, a wolf, or a coyote. Mm -hmm. How do we connect and relate to these animals as individuals, even though they're wild animals, and How do we make decisions on these degrees in terms of what we choose to kill or utilize? Yeah, I mean, those are, of course, once
3: again, the really big questions we're pondering. I mean, the first step is to recognize that each individual has an interest in living a good life, a safe life, a peaceful life, would like to thrive. And what I do is I turn the conversation often back to our companion animals, dogs and cats. And so when I talk to people... I sometimes will say to them, well, would you do that to your dog or allow your dog to be treated in a certain way? And, and they're incredulous when I ask them. They go, well, why would you ask that? And I'll say, well, the dog is no more sentient than a wolf or a coyote or a cougar or a bear or an elephant or a chimpanzee. Um, and then we can have a reasonable discussion. And I don't do it to be a fill in the blank. I just think that if we're going to make progress in the future, we need to step out of our comfort zones and we really, really need to ask very difficult questions and think out of the box. So if I say to somebody, oh, you really like seeing wolves in Yellowstone? Uh-huh. Did you know some wolves died for the good of their species? Oh, uh-huh. Would you allow your dog to die for the good of the dogs down the road? And usually the answer is no.
2: <laughs> so how do you respond to that? I mean, that's an excellent question. So how, how, do, we, how do we make that bridge?
3: Right. And it's that's a great question. So the way we make that bridge is to have people think locally. I always like to say, you know, act locally, think globally. But what I'd like to do is say to people, okay, let's talk about your dog or cat or other household companion. And we'll start having a discussion about the emotional lives of dogs, what they want from us, how we are in control of their very lives. We are in control of the lives of all other species. Because we can basically do anything we want. And of course, animals other than companion animals could do very well without us as they've done for millions of years. So I just try to have people think about what does their dog want and how hard they work to give the dog the best life they can. And then I'll say, well, what about, you know, the wildlife who lives around your house, you know, you shouldn't be shooting the bears because they get into the dump and then That's how we start expanding that compassion footprint, and we ask for consistency. And Illy, that's really, to me, the consistency. um, The uh, the idea of being consistent is really, really compelling. And then,
2: absolutely.
3: Then we just go from there. I mean, you know, I mean, in the end, people are going to make their own choices. So I don't think we need to be pushy. We just need to put it out there for people to discuss.
2: And once again, that's why I am so thrilled to have you on my show here, Our Wild World, because that's the goal of this program, is to take the information, the data, the peer-reviewed research, the evidence, uh, bring people like you to our audience to show that the paradigm has shifted, is shifting, and will continue to shift as long as we keep an open mind. And uh, as you just said, uh, be consistent in our thinking and think a little bit bigger than uh, our, our small individual lives and dramas. Mm-hmm. So from your research over the years, what do you see is key for people to better appreciate differing perspectives? And this is a biggie, and yes. it's what uh, your, your recent book, Ignoring Nature No More, has at its core. Uh, um, the differences, be, different perspectives between animal welfareists, animal rightists, and conserva- conservation biologists and, uh, uh, anti- and anti-cruelty. We, we can't save everything. So how do we s- scale up or scale down and find ways to integrate these varying perspectives? Right.
3: Um, well, I actually summarize a lot of those topics I have a book that just came out. It's a collection of the essays I write for Psychology Today, um, hundred and some odd essays. The book is called Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed, The Fascinating Science of Animal Intelligence, Emotions, Friendship, and Conservation. And so the reason I mention that is they're easy reads. And the way people begin to sensitize themselves is to familiarize themselves with, I like to say, the cognitive, the emotional, and the moral lives of other animals. We familiarize ourselves with who these animals are, not what they are, because they're who's. And maybe later we'll talk about, you know, I like to talk about who we eat and who we wear and who we kill, not what we eat, what we wear, or what we kill. And using the pronoun who really changes the name of the game. So what I try to do in my work is just... Familiarize people with the amazing and fascinating lives of other animals and have them realize what we lose when we wantonly kill them or we, you know, basically destroy their homes. And it works. You get people say, oh, I didn't know that. You know, I didn't know dingoes made tools. I didn't know New Caledonian crows made better tools than... um, You know, chimpanzees. Oh, I didn't know elephants miss their friends and grieve. I mean, you know, the list goes on. You know, we just discovered that fish perform what's called gestural or referential communication. Basically, what that means is fish use their head to point to food to other fish. It used to be thought that only humans could do that. And so we're just expanding our database incredibly as we move into the new century.
2: This is fascinating. I love the bit about the fish. So even a goldfish in, in the bowl? Well, we don't know about goldfish,
3: but if one species of fish does it, it would be reason to, reasonable to conclude that other fish can do it too. Yeah.
2: Well, this is, this is absolutely fascinating. And you brought up a, moment, uh, a point just a moment ago about who we eat, uh, versus what we eat. So we're going to take a short break right now. Uh, please stay with us with our special guest, Mark Beckhoff, Professor Emeritus at uh, Colorado University at Boulder. So stick with us. We have a lot more fascinating information to come. If you'd like to call in, please call 866-472-5788, or you can send us an email to wildize at .org and we'll be right back. Stick with us.
1: The Internet's number 1 talk station. Number 1 talk station. Voiceamerica.com. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger without them. Our rivers dry up. Our forests Don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands w-i-l-d-i-z-e dot o-r-g streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com you're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World we want to hear from you Call into the program at one 866 472 That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world.
2: And welcome back with our special guest today, Mark Beckoff, and we're talking about increasing our compassionate footprint and what that actually means. So, right before the break, Mark mentioned um, a concept of uh, understanding and relating to animals in a better way that they are an important part of our life, uh, as eating animal protein is deeply embedded and entrenched in many of our cultures today, and probably not going away anytime soon, including those where wild game, as much as I dislike that term, <laughs> wild animals, is an important part of the everyday menu. How do we reconcile sustainable utilization as either poverty reduction, or nutritional needs with the obvious, what seems obvious conflicts of interests of animal rights, animal welfare, extremes, where where no animal should ever be used, mistreated, or abused, or killed by humans? Yeah. Um, Big one.
3: Big one. Well, I mean, they're all big questions, and we need to deal with them. I mean, the way I look at this, too, is there's going to be trade-offs. So, you know, my personal choice would be the world would be vegan. It's not going to be. My personal choice would be there wouldn't be zoos. For now, there are going to be zoos. And I really don't mean that in a light way. So what we have to do is make the best choices we can and set examples for people as to how they may live. So in terms of who we eat, not what we eat, I frankly can't imagine that anybody really has to eat animals from factory farms. So that would be one way to begin to increase our compassion footprint and to recognize the individuality of other animals. People may say, well, I'm going to eat organic. I'm going to eat you know, animals from a family farm. And factory farms really aren't farms. They're just mass torture chambers where animals are routinely and horrifically abused. So those are the kinds of things, that, once again, that we need to put out to people is we have to show them the different choices they have and we have to show them how easy it is to change their meal plans, how easy it is to live peacefully with the bears or the coyotes or wolves who live around their homes. And I guess that's what I spend my life doing.
2: (laughs) Um, Using the term living peacefully could be A little difficult. When you talk to a rancher, we both live in Colorado. We live in the mountains. We've both come from ranching communities or, um, let's take the 4 H, uh, concept where people grow up with animals and understanding and, uh, of treating these animals well. But let's talk about you said you'd worked in Africa. So in other countries where tribal cultures depend on wildlife and they don't have, let's say, the luxury to have this, this kind of a conversation or incorporate this kind of con- conceptual understanding into their lives for whatever me- reason. So in Swahili, nyama means meat. Wanyama means animals. So how do we outside of our Western developed world. I know this is a big deal. If we can change the Western world, then we can have an impact on the rest of the world. But how do we um, incorporate this kind of uh, uh, concept and understanding into a very rural area that is poverty stricken and has nothing else but wildlife to eat? Well, the simple
3: answer is that we can't. And once again, I don't mean that in a defeatist way, but one of the aspects of compassionate conservation that I really love and the whole notion of expanding our compassion footprint is factoring in all the stakeholders. And the stakeholders would be the non-human animals and the human animals. So <clears throat> I know for a fact, because I've been into Kenya and Tanzania, you know, you might have a family. They own, or you know, I don't like the word own, but they, you know, they own a cow and a goat and something happens to the goat they've lost fifty percent of their resources imagine what it would be like if you or I lost fifty percent of our resources we wouldn't like it so once again I think what we need to do is we need to really honor cultural differences and that's where some trade-offs are going to be people make make decisions that I don't like but I don't have the right to tell them what to do sitting in my comfortable home in the mountains of Colorado But we also put the information out there about, say, the sentient nature of the goats or the sheep or the cows, who they have. And we also try to teach them techniques for living, say, coexisting peacefully, building fences, being a little more careful. But there's a real world out there, and there's not going to be one set of standards that apply. I mean, there might be a moral code, do no intentional harm. You know, there might be a moral code about not harming other animals, but let's just face it, you know, what applies here in the United States or in the Western world simply does not apply to other countries.
2: That's an excellent answer, and it, it just brought up a thought in my mind that when you had said you didn't like the term own, most tribal cultures, pastoralist cultures, they don't... Con- whether you use the term own or not, they have a very different relationship yes. with their livestock than yeah. we do. We, You would mentioned CAFOs and factory farming uh, before. We have distanced yeah. our food processing from our lives. So first off, we need to remove that distance and bring it right back under our eyes. And once we see it, I think... Uh, will be able to say that's abhorrent and it's not what we should be doing. And I think that is definitely a growing consensus. Um, so once we have ex- have accepted and opened our, our mind to the, the sense of an animal mind and the ramifications and consequences of that are mind-boggling, how does a person keep from becoming paralyzed by these many consequences of our everyday actions?
3: Well... You just have to have faith, and I don't mean that lightly. I'm, I'm pretty much a hardcore genetic optimist. I was born into a family in which that kind of thinking was just normal. But one of the things you can do is you can look around at all the wonderful people and wonderful organizations around the entire world who are making a difference. And we don't need to drown in the pessimism or the despair. We should really flourish in The positive things that we're getting done. We are getting a lot done. Believe me, the world would be a lot worse place today if it weren't for people who really cared than it would be if they just said, Oh, the heck with it. You know, we can't do anything. Let's go drink a beer or something. And I really mean that. So I think that one way to make people aware or have people become aware is that we travel more or have more exposure to other cultures. But once again, in these economic times, that's hard to do. You can do it with videos. You can do it with documentaries. But I just find myself waking up in the morning trying to figure out what can I do today to make the world a better place. I don't mean that in a self-serving way. I don't mean that you know, I'm you know, the gift to the world. But I always ask myself, what can I do today that can help to make the world a better place? And it may be a very simple thing or it may be a long-term project.
2: I would say that's an excellent question for anybody to ask themselves in the morning, maybe print that up and put it by your bed. What can I do today to make the world a better place? I think that is an excellent answer to deal with um, uh, what's going on in our world today. In terms of Facebook and emails and doing the kind of work that you and I do and our colleagues, we are sort of magnets for all the bad news, which does get depressing it you have to walk away from it so um i'd say that's a good reminder when you get to that point uh just walk away and say okay i know it's bad out there but what can i do to make it better yep so you had mentioned videos and tv and and uh, reconnecting this relationship But today much of our natural history programming is based around so-called character or personality driven reality series interacting with the wild. What do you think the effect of this type of programming has had or is having on our ability to appreciate and interact in a healthy way with nature, especially on our young people who often do not have any other relationship with real nature? Yeah, it's a good
3: question. Um, There's been some studies done that show that certainly these sorts of, um, this sort of exposure isn't harmful. And there's some suggestions that it's useful. But nobody, I don't think, has really, really studied it in any great detail. But once again, because a lot of people don't have that opportunity to, if you will, see firsthand, you know, the savannas of East Africa or glaciers or Antarctica, um, you know, the Rocky Mountains, Grand Teton National Park, the Grand Canyon. I mean, you know, you name these things that a lot of us just take for granted. I think these shows, when they're done really well, can sensitize people once again to who these animals are and what they need. I don't like shows where you know you have crocodile or alligator wrestlers, or you have you know these shark hunts. There was a series recently that I wrote about because then it just sort of puts, pushes the message that it's okay to interfere in the lives of these wild animals or, in fact, it's okay to kill them. You know, the myth of sharks being these horrific predators, you know, and then it's okay to kill them. So I think we need to be very careful in the shows that, you know, I guess you have to say, you know, we need to be very careful in what's aired and how it's aired, but I know I and a, lo- a number of my colleagues now advise Some of these series and I think they're better and more realistic because of that.
2: That's excellent to know. Um, I was recently at the Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival where our short film, The Elephant Room, won Best in Short Shorts Mm -hmm. and they had a lot of breakout sessions. And, uh, with all the top producers, broadcasters, you, you name it, from everywhere in the world, filmmakers, cameramen. And what I noticed that there, it, it, it's stunning, stunning natural history programming, the films, the documentaries. But at the end of the breakout sessions, at the end of the day, what it ended up being most about, what I, what I felt that I took away was that, um, it was about metrics audiences and, and counting these numbers and the conservation message sort of gets lost or is in the last two minutes of of the show. Yeah. So um, programming is an important thing. I think we can learn it from it. But um, I sometimes also find that the character in these character personality driven series becomes more important than the wildlife. And I was glad to hear that you sort of uh, validated that thought. Yeah, I mean, you got films like Blackfish. Yes, cove. yeah, Blackfish, um, The Cove. They've
3: um, a new a new documentary that just came out last month called Exposed about the horrific killing ways of wildlife services in this country. Oh yeah, that's what you really need. You 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 really need these shows that show it like it is, and aren't centered on some you know beautiful woman or handsome man who you know, basically is in a studio dressed up like Rama or the jungle. Um, We don't need those. I mean, you know, the Marlon Perkins series of years ago had its place, but we now know better. So I love the documentaries that show it like it is. And then once again, people don't like to be told what to do. And they just basically have to decide what they want to do.
2: Well with films like that it makes the choice much more clear cut. It leaves it's it's not ambiguous. Um yeah. so it, it's very helpful. I had not heard of the film Exposed. I've make it made a note and uh our listeners will know that uh, wildlife services is one of my particular pet peeves. There is an excellent chapter by uh, Camilla Fox in your anthology, Ignoring Nature No More. And actually, it's sort of where I had to stop because it upset me. So, not upset me um, in terms of, I don't know how to say it. It, it disgusted me that this is going on. And uh, so, I would love to have another episode where we just simply discuss wildlife services because I think it's critically important that either people watch the movie Exposed or read more about wildlife services and sign the petitions that I've put out to request Congress, to demand Congress to defund wildlife services. So perhaps you and maybe Camilla Fox and some of your colleagues would be willing to come back and we could focus on that specifically. So, because um, oh, yeah. that, that's a whole—that's a whole big deal right in itself.
3: Yeah, I call them murder incorporated, and and I really mean <laughs> that because focus. See, that's one way to get the conversation back local is talk about what Wildlife Services is doing, and once again, not say, oh, well, we don't have any problems here. It's all the third world poor countries. No, that's just ridiculous. So. Anyway, yeah, I think that there's a big connection about wildlife services and the way we treat wildlife here that would shock, it would utterly shock your listeners.
2: And I agree 100%. In fact, that was one of the notes I had had made that we have such an emotional knee-jerk reaction to what is going on with elephants and ivory, rhino, and the debate to legalize the rhino Horn trade, which is basically, I think, a CAFO for wildlife um, yep. and economic benefit for us, as we talked about before, doesn't consider the uh, lives of these animals being bred or lions or tigers being bred for uh, utilization, specific uses, to be killed. So yep. that's a huge subject, and I would love to go on with that more. Um, but right now, let us uh, we've got about two minutes. This is... We'll start here and we'll probably pick it up after the break. Let's get into the emotional lives. And as you say, and many others have written, the moral and social justice in terms of the animal mind. Um, Once again, that example of India uh, uh, giving personhood to dolphins, limited personhood. That doesn't mean they're going to go out and start voting, but in terms of sentience, and you had said autonomy and decision, decision making and potential how would you define the changing paradigm of what of of this person who actually we covered this a little bit already and um we covered this, actually. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll just skip this question. But let's do go a bit more into the concept of the emotional lives. You've done a lot of writing uh, about this in your books, Wild Justice, Animal Manifesto, and then sort of pulling it all together in Ignoring Nature No More. And you have a new book that has just been released. And uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it's a good place. We'll be taking a break soon. Yeah, we've got about one minute. We'll pick it up after the break.
3: Yeah, the major question that I will focus on is not if other animals are emotional beings, but why emotions have evolved. It's no longer a case of wondering whether dogs feel joy or elephants feel grief or chimpanzees get embarrassed and show resentment. So that's a great place to take off.
2: Okay, then I think that's a great take place to take take a break so stick with us we're going to find out some really interesting information and uh, once again if you have questions or would like to call in please call us at 866-472-5788 or send us an email to wildize at org. stick with us we're talking with uh, professor emeritus mark beckoff we'll be right back
1: W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G.
0: We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Streaming live. The
1: leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World.
2: And welcome back to Our Wild World with our special guest, Mark Beckoff. Right before the break, we started uh, to get into a really hot topic, an important and critical topic, um, that not only includes cruelty and abuse, but uh, is about sentience. Mark, I loved your statement in... Uh Uh, Animal fast Manifesto, that say, and I'm going to quote, Some say life is too short to mess with skeptics, but you and many others like me feel life is too long for the misleading skeptical view of animal sentience to continue, as it allows for far too much animal suffering and abuse, that skeptics raise the bar so high that even humans wouldn't be considered feeling beings. So right before the break we were talking about, and you had made a very distinct... Uh, a, a statement why animals are emotional, not if they are emotional. So that's making an assumption, that, a, a premise that we're, we're moving from. So it's an acceptance of they are, not yeah. if they are. Can you talk about that a little bit more, please? Yeah, I mean, years, of, you know,
3: not so long ago, people thought they really didn't know if dogs were emotional. You know, they say, well, we don't really know that dogs enjoy playing. Well, of course you know that. I mean, it's not, I mean, to me, that's pseudoscience to say we don't really know whether dogs enjoy playing. So there's really been a move. There's very few, if any, skeptics left. And now the question is, why do dogs, for example, and other animals experience joy? Why do they experience grief? And the big question would be, is how do we factor their emotional lives and their individual personalities and temperaments into decisions we make, say, conservation decisions. So that's, once again, getting back to compassionate conservation in terms of focusing on individuals. Not all fish are the same. There's bold fish and shy fish, bold birds, shy birds, happy dogs, not-so-happy dogs. And, once again, it's just focusing back in on the lives of individuals what they're feeling, and what they need. You know, a lot of my colleagues used to say, very few now, but still some say, well, we really don't know what other animals want and need. Yes, we do. They want to live in peace and safety, absent harm, just like we do. Do we know some of the, or, you know, are there still details to learn? Yeah, there might be. But let's face it, you know, among the animals I know, they want to be happy, they want to feel safe, they want to feel loved, and Generally, we know exactly what we need to do to have them feel that way
2: so let 's talk a little bit about anthropomorphism um, that seems to be a big thing everybody says or we used to say that attributing our emotions to an animal uh, is anthropomorphizing when we have so many uh, programs Lion King of uh, the wild all these animated programs even the new ones epic whatever um, that characterize animals as people Um, so in some ways I think this is a good thing and in some ways I think it is a bad thing but you've written a lot about (coughs) how anthropomorphism fits in to this uh, concept of increasing our compassionate uh, footprint and compassionate conservation can you help us understand where those lines are in terms of anthropomorphizing
3: yeah I mean anthropomorphism is basically attributing human characteristics to non-human entities, and people talk about, you know, angry thunderstorms. And, well, of course, a thunderstorm can't be angry. What I've written is that the, con- that the notion of anthropomorphism really isn't a problem at all. And those who claim, you know, say, oh, you're just being anthropomorphic, do it on their own. So the example I always use would be, if I say that an elephant in a zoo who's chained or alone or you know has no friends or is not happy, some of the people will say, well, no, look at her. She's happy. You're just being anthropomorphic. And then it gets really quiet. The point I'm trying to make is a very simple one. And that is to say another animal is happy is being, quote, anthropomorphic too. So it's a double-edged sword. And as far as I'm concerned, what we really need to do is just not worry about it anymore. Just put it aside. I have told my students I don't want them talking about anthropomorphism anymore because it's a detour. It's a deterrent. People will say, oh, you're being anthropomorphic, and then they walk away. And so it's, I think it's really, really important that we're not being anthropomorphic. Um, if you accept Charles Darwin's ideas about evolutionary continuity you know where we talk about the differences in among species being differences in degree rather than differences in kind shades of gray then if we have something they have it too end of story so good biology really makes it really easy to just get rid of the fear of anthropomorphism.
2: That's excellent. I like that. Get rid of the fear of anthropomorphism. And there's a, a really wonderful series going on right now by a Discovery Channel called North America. This ties in um, the concept we were talking about before that wildlife doesn't just live elsewhere. We need to learn about the wildlife we have here and make a connection to that. Uh, we've lost a lot of our wildlife, and this goes back again to wildlife services. And a reason we love going elsewhere to a place like Africa is that there is still so much wildlife. So in your latest, uh, in, in, not your latest, because you have another book coming out that we're going to talk about in just a minute, but in, in ignoring nature no more, who I, which I really, really urge our audience to read. You may not be able to read it through, but pick it up and take, take it chapter for chapter. So it's Ignoring Nature No More, The Case for Compassionate Conservation, a wide range of subject matter, and it's, it's extensive, it's intense, and covers all aspects at the heart of animal protection and ecology. Uh the authors make it very clear that we humans must radically change our behavior, not only for the survival of our earth, but for us, for all of us, all species, um, that we're not the only lead characters in on this planet. So um we're talking about and we're hearing about we must make radical shifts. So what I'm enjoying about our conversation is that we have already raised the bar and we are acting on the presumption that um We have to make these shifts, so what are they going to be? How can we incorporate this shift in our daily life that's not so painful, that doesn't require sacrifice that everybody thinks they have to go back and live in a cave? How how do we manage to incorporate this shift and move this paradigm along?
3: Right. I mean, I think that individuals will choose however they want to do it. Some some people will work, want were to you know want to protect and help mammals, some birds, some reptiles. Some are more concerned with the land. So what we really need to recognize is that people with different interests should just go off and pursue their interests because everything is related. And you know, you know that old saying. Well, what happens in Beijing influences what happens in New York or Boulder or Aspen. It does. And it's not being fluffy, but the world is really interconnected. And what I do ultimately trickles down to what you do and vice versa. We just don't know it. So, you know, the compassionate conservation movement, once again, would stress the fact that we need to pay attention to different cultures. But we really need to really, really, really realize that what happens in one place influences what happens in another. And we say that in a positive way. I often look to my colleagues in Kenya or India or um, China for support when I see the conditions under which they're working and how hard it is to affect positive change. And then it motivates me.
2: So that would be another thing we could add to that little poster when we wake up every morning, what I do today does make a difference for the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So um, speaking of which, you've got a new book that came out in November called um, Why Dogs Hump and Why Bees Get Depressed. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. I think you had said uh, that it's kind of a summary. So you've grown a lot over the the decades that you've been doing this work and have uh We've transformed as a population and as a species over this time. So put it all together for us uh, and what you would like our audience to take away today.
3: Right. Well, the, yeah, Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed is a collection of 100 and some art essays from my Psychology Today blog. So they're readable, they're short, they cover every topic and more than we've been talking about today. And so what it allows people to do is to see what we know and then to make decisions I like to say on how we're going to use what we know to make the lives of other animals better and when I say other animals I mean other humans as well because we not only suffer the indignities to which we expose other animals but we also feel good when we do good things for other animals and their homes and that's supported this whole new field of conservation psychology. Uh, I know you talked to Philip Fideshi who is developing this field of conservation social work. What it comes down to is conservation is about people, not animals. Increasing our compassion footprint is about people, not animals, but of course or other animals, but of course they are going to be brought into the equation. So I just like to tell people in a very simple way, all we have to do is be compassionate, positive, and proactive. Be polite to other people. Don't let people sidetrack you into debating about whether dogs have emotions or wolves care about whether they're tortured. Of course they do. And go from there. So, I mean, is it easy? No. But I actually think that it's easier than people realize to make a positive difference in the world.
2: I think it's easier, so to speak, if we step outside of our personal dramas. Our lives and our time has become so accelerated these days. We still only have 60 minutes, but now we're expected to do so so much more in that 60 minutes, and we get overwhelmed to the point that We don't have mental room, maybe, to think about these larger things. Or in my case, I sometimes don't have mental room to think about anything but this kind of uh, information and conversation. So um, in terms of making room in the daily life of people um, and stepping out of this personal drama, what would be um, a word of advice?
3: Well, I think a word of advice would be that We do have a lot of drama in our lives, and we're always busy, 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 busy. So are other people. I think once again, what it is is we work together as a community, a global community. The first dictum, if you will, is do no intentional harm, and then and be positive. And like I said, I travel a lot. I talk to people all over the world, and a lot of there a lot of what they're doing stimulates me to keep on working. But we really need to realize I'm not a doomsday guy, but we can't continue the way we're on, uh, the track we're on. We are losing species as an unprecedented, at an unprecedented rate. We are losing habitat. But the last thing I'll say is we go to the kids. I do a lot of work with Jane Goodall's Roots and Shoots programs. I work with other kids' programs. We go to the kids. Because we have an obligation not to rob them of a beautiful world and we have an obligation to do all we can so that our children have the best life they can and there's no way they're going to have a good life if we don't factor in non-human animals.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for that. If you'd like to learn, our listeners would like to learn more about Mark's work, you can visit his website at markbeckoff.com. That's M-A-R-C-B-E-K-O-F-F.com and uh, ethological ethics.org all one word mark i thank you so much for being our guest today and it's a pleasure and uh, i would love to have you back and i we again we barely scratched the surface of everything that we could talk about there's
3: a lot to talk about but thank you so much ellie i i i'm thrilled to be on your show
2: It's been a pleasure, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you. So that's it for today and Our Wild World. So think about increasing your compassionate footprint as you walk outside the door today and look at Our Wild World around you. Thank you. This is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World.